On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Today on the Indo-Daily, why you just can't get the staff, how COVID is wiping out our workforce. Staff shortages are the latest in a long list of problems the pandemic must answer for. So what is the state of play and how much longer can it continue? I'm Fiona Sheehan and joining me today are Anne-Marie Walsh, Industrial Relations Correspondent at the Irish Independent. I've heard some estimates that there could be up to a third of staff off in, in some sectors this week. And Christine Losher, Professor of Immunology at DCU. Omicron has the potential to put us in the best position that we could possibly be in, in having immunity to COVID-19 through vaccinations and natural immunity from infection. Anne-Marie Walsh, Back into the the first full week after Christmas and the new year. So where are things at now in terms of COVID impacted and caused staff shortages across the country? It's pretty bad, Fiona, to be honest. Um, and I think there is real concern that it could go off the charts this week, given the level of, of cases there are at the moment. You know, we're at record levels of cases And um, I've heard some estimates that there could be up to a third of staff off in in some sectors this week. Wow. We were looking at the UK last year when they went through a thing called the pandemic, where people were being told they were close contact. And that's effectively what we're going through now at the moment, is it? I think it is. You know, I think some sectors have been hit worse than others. You know, I think crashes in particular have it particularly bad at the moment. I was talking to a crash owner there uh, last week who said she's basically going to have to shut up shop in Athlone this week. Um, as of today, um, she can't offer preschool services anymore because of people either having staff, either having contracted the virus or being close contacts. Um, I heard Danny McCoy there from IBEC last week estimating that uh, he was saying workforce surveys they'd carried out has shown that for every one person who contracts the virus, you would have three close contacts. So given, you know, I think what are the case levels at the moment, about 26,000 yesterday, you can just imagine how many close contacts there are. Yeah. And, and yet at the same time, no great urgency being shown from Neffet's part in terms of changing the close contacts rule. Probably for the next couple of weeks, we're, just, we're going to have to ride this one out. I am getting a sense there might be moves, you know, going on behind the scenes to change the close contact rules. Um, I think definitely Leo Varadkar was pushing for that last week, you know, and uh, I think was hope, half hoping that there would be some change when Neff had met, I think around Thursday or Friday, but it didn't happen. But over the weekend, I believe the um, chief medical officer got a report from a European body, the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, 
Um, and it was basically recommending a scenario like that, which exists in the health sector, where they're already giving derogations to staff, you know, who are close contacts. I, I think that the scenario is if you um, are fully boosted, you know, you've had the three vaccines, vaccine shots, that um, if you get a negative antigen after that or a negative PCR, that you could go back to work rather than waiting. I, I think, you know, I've had personal experience of this where you had to do three for, I think, five days in a row before you could emerge again, you know. So um, I think that that's maybe what they're looking at. So I do think they're, they're, this is being examined whether they go for it or not. We do, you know, it's anyone's guess, but I do think there was huge disappointment, as as you rightly said there, you know, last week that the, you know, this was expected that you know that it would be examined, and I do think there was huge disappointment among the employer groups, certainly that that it didn't. Um, I I know the unions are, are urging caution at the same time, so it's it's a balancing act. Yeah, it's that curious scenario where the government wants something done but says it can't do it without getting an expert recommendation from a from a Quengo. So so there you go. That's a that's a tale that can be told quite a lot during this pandemic. So in effect, are, are we forcing parts of the economy to to shut down unnecessarily or involuntarily here because they they literally can't stay open without without the staff. So is it a is it a lockout rather than a lockdown? Do you think at this point? Yeah, I I do think that it it needs to be looked at. You know, there have to be some benefits to you know most of the population being vaccinated, and the fact that obviously, <coughs> excuse me, obviously ICU numbers are down. We don't hear as much about the deaths these days. I'm not sure how that's going, but it, it doesn't seem to be as high. Obviously. Um, so you would think that there, there should be some benefit from that. And in the US, they have relaxed the rules, um, you know, and, and it, it doesn't. I'm not sure it has had a, a dire impact. So I suppose if it was done cautiously, I'm no public health expert, obviously, but, um, you know, you would like to think that at some point we have to ease ourselves out of this. And, and how are we going to do it? And there has to be some start to it. So that would be my own view. What about are, are, are any figures? From from the government then telling us anything in terms of people claiming benefits here, be it be it PUP uh, because their employer has been forced to close down, or even enhanced illness benefit, do do they even have a handle on on the situation at this point? No, I find this very frustrating last week, Fionn, because I was trying to, you know, find out what was happening. Because when you look at the enhanced illness benefit figures, and, and this is the special payment that was set up for people at the start of this pandemic um, who either contracted COVID or needed to self-isolate or restrict their movements, uh, that they could claim this and they wouldn't be, you know, they could continue with their lives. Um, and basically the figures don't tally with what we're hearing from the employer representatives. They're around 14,400 at the moment. Now, they increased by about 9,000 since before Christmas. But, you know, when you think of the size of the workforce, it's over 2 million. This isn't a huge portion of the workforce. So I was wondering, you know, why why is this? I would have expected them to skyrocket given the, the portions of the workforce that the employer groups are saying are out, are absent at the moment. Um, which I, I think IBEC was given a figure that there were 25% of staff absent in manufacturing, which would equate with about 50,000 staff. So obviously that's not being reflected in the figures. The only thing I, I can imagine is going on is that there is some kind of a backlog in social protection. Now, the department didn't come back and tell me that was the case, but I'm just guessing that may be it. 
um, it, it's hard to know why why there is that, uh, why the figures don't seem to tally. But, you know, we have seen actual services being hit. You know, it's undeniable. When you look at Irish Rail, they've, they've had to curtail services. Now, last week they were saying those um, reductions were minor. They didn't feel that they were, you know, they couldn't handle it, basically. But, you know, they're still imp- impacting a lot of people um, in, you know, manufacturing as well. I, Danny McCoy was saying, you know, there were huge numbers of people absent as well. And in Hollier's associations were also saying they were having difficulties. But um, I, I think given that we probably haven't reached the peak of this yet, unfortunately, it can only get worse. Paul Reed in, in the health service has said that they're struggling. You know, he has suspended, um, rather, sorry, he's curtailed elective procedures for two weeks. And the INMO, the nurses union, is looking for that to be extended until the end of January. So there's obviously a lot of pressure on the health service. I think that the absence of 15,000 people at the moment, uh, which is 12% of the workforce. Professor Christine Losher, how concerned are we right now uh, about Omicron as a variant, given that we're aware we're about a week or 10 days off where we were told the peak should hit? So surprisingly, even regardless of the case numbers, we're nowhere near as concerned as we were uh, coming into early December with the unknowns, I suppose, about Omicron. Um, so I think we're you'll have seen, I suppose, over the last few days, we're in a much more optimistic mood. And I think that's down to a couple of different factors. Uh, firstly, um, we've seen a lot of science come out and show that Omicron is kind of more of a upper respiratory um, type of a disease in that it's not actually able to infect deep in the lungs the same way the other variants were. And of course, that deep infection in the lungs is what was really causing or driving that pneumonia, um, which ended, you know, really resulted in a lot of people ended up in ICU. So, um, and we're seeing that play out in the kind of steady state of our ICU figures. So I think that, you know, this seems to be behaving in quite a different way to the other variants that we've seen and, and kind of gives us that that optimistic, I suppose, outlook. So, but our booster campaign, I think, has played a huge part in that Uh, We learned very early on in kind of, you know, September, October, um, that the boosting of immunity was going to be very important. And then into December, we started to see that actually against Omicron specifically, that booster was going to be very important. So we boosted a couple of million people really over the last couple of months. And that's played a huge part in in keeping um, infection at a very, I suppose, at a much milder kind of degree than it would have been um, getting COVID without a vaccine and getting COVID with a vaccine and a booster are two completely different scenarios. Well, while some might say, well, it's a milder infection, so it was never going to be a big deal. We are still seeing hospitalizations. So those people don't have a mild infection and you will still get large hundreds of thousands of people in this country are in vulnerable cohorts. Um, and they would have absolutely um, had much more severe disease if it hadn't been for the vaccine and the booster campaign. What's kind of managed the case levels, even though we know that they're huge at the moment, is that the recurrent restrictions, people's behaviour and following public health guidelines um, has absolutely, um, uh, I suppose, prevented those case numbers from being any higher than what they are. So all of these co- things collectively have played, played a huge role in putting us in the positive position that we are in today. And that's not about case numbers. It's about hospitalizations and ICUs.
there were bad words used 12, 18 months ago, like like herd immunity and letting the virus run riot. And, and that was with different strains. But now that we're with Omicron, it looks like uh, all the data to date suggests that the, the symptoms are, are milder. Have we reached a point where we're accepting now that everyone is going to get COVID one way or another, and we need to get on with, with with life as a result. I think with the with the transmissibility of Omicron, I think we're we're accepting. I mean, most people will say, "Oh, well, there's probably a, a high chance you're going to get it at some stage in this kind of surge." Um, and those people who don't get it are going to be the very recently boosted and double vaccinated uh, uh, people who've possibly also had a previous infection because we do know that that there has been some conference of immunity with previous infection. So I think I think where we're at is that this level of what we call population immunity is certainly more attainable um, with with Omicron than it has been with previous variants, because we we don't have the massive concerns about the translations into ICUs that we would have had previously. That said, we don't have we haven't had enough time since the emergence of Omicron, which really was only the end of December. We haven't had enough time to see how long does immunity that you get with Omicron last. So we know that with some of the other um, uh, variants that we would still see the same as what happens after a vaccination. Antibody levels wane over time, whether it's natural infection or a vaccine. So we don't know how much immunity to Omicron will stick around uh, for the next two or three months. And the other thing we don't know is, is that we've seen a high rate of reinfection um, of people who've had previous variants with Omicron. Um, so people have had COVID twice, kind of, unfortunately. We don't know, and we're not going to know probably for a few more weeks, whether um, reinfection with Omicron after having Omicron is a thing. And I think if it's not a thing, I think if you get a good immunity against Omicron and that adds to the population immunity, there is a possibility that we might be in a couple of months time in a very good position where we have a really the strongest vaccine wall and immunity wall that we've ever had from both boosters and from natural um, infection. And if Omicron doesn't reinfect and kind of almost burns out or doesn't have any more places to go, we could actually end up in a very positive situation because of Omicron. Omicron has the potential to put us in the best position that we could possibly be in, in having immunity to COVID-19 through vaccinations and natural immunity from infection. And that's a position we wouldn't have seen ourselves in with the previous variants because they were far too dangerous for people to get infected. Our training of our T-cells in the background that's really preventing that severity is being built on in, in, in this surge. And that training of T-cells, regardless of the variant that comes along, may give us unbelievable protection against any other variant that comes along against severity, not necessarily infection and case numbers, but against severity. And I think that's also a really good reason to be optimistic. Now, a, a knock-on effect, though, that we are experiencing from 
Omicron is the what they were calling in in England last year the pinging the pinging effect. So we're all now being pinged as close contacts of people, while your hospital admissions aren't necessarily uh, going up that that dramatically in ICU. You are getting pressure in the the health service. Schools are returning, but with a large number of of kids and 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 teachers uh, out. Workplaces and employers are finding that staff can't come, not necessarily because they are sick, but because they are. Uh, close contacts. Is it safe at this point to say to people who are close contacts that it, it's okay for them to come to work? Yeah, I mean, the close contact rules are a difficult one because, you know, we'd all like to change the rules at the moment to facilitate, you know, the people being able to attend work and addressing that issue. But the close contact rules are in place for public health reasons, which is about breaking chains of transmission. So it's really difficult to kind of modify those rules um, and not be not, and not take a risk, if you like. So at the moment, I think the interesting scenario is, is that we've had these kind of um, close contact, loose rules uh, for children in schools, actually, since we introduced antigen testing. So they're children who were in the same pods didn't have to isolate as close contacts. They just took their antigen test every day before they went to school. And if they were asymptomatic and antigen negative, they were allowed to go in. So we already kind of had a scenario where close contacts didn't have to isolate unless they were symptomatic or, or antigen positive. So I think it's going to be hard to modify the rules in healthcare settings, which is actually, interestingly, where we need them the most. And that's because as a close contact with the transmissibility of Omicron, you are still at high risk for being, for developing an infection and being able to pass it on. Antigen testing is a great way of picking up when you're at an infectious period, but there's obviously a period of time where you could have been, um, uh, you know, incubating the virus and indeed transmitting. So it's a really difficult one because you'd love to be able to say, well, look, if you're asymptomatic, you're probably okay. The one thing we don't have enough information on is how many of our close contacts are translating into cases. So we have a huge problem with our reporting system at the moment because our PCR system's overrun. We haven't got the system up and running to be able to record positive antigen testing, to record them as case numbers. So unfortunately, we don't know how close contacts have translated into cases in the Omicron surge that we've had in the last few weeks. And I think if we knew that, we'd actually be able to make a better call on it. But we don't know that number. You'd be hopeful, though, that, that February is looking a bit brighter. Spring is coming. I think what we're the pressure that we're under is going to be short-lived. It's 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 we're going to see it probably for the next maybe two weeks, and then I think we'll start to see a drop in in all of those different factors. To the, to somebody who's not concerned about capacity and PCR testing, it looks like we're plateauing, but we're not. We're just not. We're just at max capacity for testing. So I think our our case numbers are probably around fifty thousand a day. Um, if we if we have a reporting system and see that, then we'll actually be able to see when we're dropping. At the moment, we won't don't know when we're peaking, and we don't know when we're dropping until that reporting system changes. That was Christine Lusher. I'm Fionn Shane, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was produced by Mary Carr, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, with sound design by John Smith. You can follow the Indo Daily wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>